It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers, and welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes, and we have a blog, which someday we'll update at, filmsociology.tumblr.com. Just you and me today, because, well, it's New Year's Day. Happy New Year to everybody. Kobe and Bianca and Frank, I think, are huddled in their houses watching something. Anyway, Happy New Year to everybody. Hope you had a great 2015. I know I did. And uh, we're going to talk, I will talk briefly a little bit. There's only one film that opened this week that uh, I, I want to discuss. And then uh, some Blu-ray titles. And then we'll dip into the archives and uh, pull out some favorite interviews from 2015. So many to choose from. It's a buffet. But yeah, um, this past week, because it, we're now at the tail end of grown-up movie season and... Uh, I had, we had already seen a press screening of this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, three nights ago I was able to take my daughter to The Hateful Eight. Yes, uh, my 14-year-old got to experience her first Quentin Tarantino the- film in a theater. She had seen the others at home. And uh, people had talked before about how uh, Django Unchained was his was Quentin Tarantino's Western. This is really his Western. Um you know, Django and the film he did before that, um, Inglorious Bastards, was kind of his, his, I don't know, his revenge fantasy double feature, even though they weren't made at the same time. Um, really impressive cast. Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Walton Goggins, who really stands out in this. He's, uh, if, if you don't know him by now, he had a bit part in uh, a small role in Django Unchained, but he's best known for his TV work, especially on uh, the, um, the Shield and Justified um, really has a lot of fun as uh, Sheriff Chris Maddox. Damian Bashir is in the show, as well as Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, so it's a mini uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs reunion. Bruce Dern, Zoe Bell, and there, there's another name actor that's in the show, that's in the film, but I don't want to tell you. 
um, because it's the, one of the probably the biggest quibble I have with the film, and it's not that big of a quibble. Um, the film is set in uh, Wyoming in the dead of winter in a uh, in a cabin. It's kind of a stop uh, a, a stop uh, for uh, ho- carriages and. Uh, a group of people who some know each other more than others, including Jackson, Russell. Um, Samuel Jackson is a, a former major and uh, now bounty hunter, as is Kurt Russell, who's bringing in Jennifer Jason Lee. And uh, they want, and they wind up picking up a sheriff left out in the cold. And they come to a house, a cabin that has Damian Bashir, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, and Bruce Dern. And uh, it's all isolated for the most part in the cabin. I mean, there's a probably 20 minutes or so setting up to this, but it is in a, for the most part, in a single location. And uh, nothing, nothing, this isn't really shocking. There's a little nonlinear storytelling, but I don't want to give that away. That's in the second half of the film. Um, the version that is out in theaters is um, not the roadshow version. Uh, the members of the Indiana Film Journalists Association, of which I am a member, uh, we got to see the roadshow version. Of course, there's a 70 miller, there's 70 millimeter prints. And people keep asking, where can one find 70-millimeter print of The Hateful Eight if you live in Indianapolis? Your two best bets are Cleveland and Chicago. Or if you start writing letters to the IMAX people uh, downtown, start writing now and keep writing. Anyway, um, that version comes with an overture and a 10-minute or 12-minute intermission, if I remember correctly, but with with an intermission. this Quentin wanted to make one of the big... Scope, huge epic scope, uh, cinema scope, westerns of the uh, the fifties and sixties, and uh, he he does that as far as the it, it looks great, of course, um, well directed, well shot, and yes, well acted. Uh, but he really wanted to do a big scope western, but at the same time, the 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 majority of the film is in one space; it is in a cabin, so. It, um, so you do get images of Rio Bravo, and of course it was kind of redone as Rio Lobo, and and then that was also kind of remade as Assault on Precinct Thirteen, where everybody it has to is stuck in one location. Uh, but you do get some beautiful footage at the beginning of the film, and there's also the teaming up of people that uh, generally maybe don't like and or don't trust each other, but they kind of have to work together, and it starts out a little bit with. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Kurt Russell's characters as two bounty hunters who are mostly there to protect their own uh, their own bounty, but wind up having to ride together. And then it switches about halfway through the film. Again, I don't want to give it away. Uh, it's a bloody western. Um, I you expect that from Tarantino. Um, and yeah, words are said that probably uh, some folks are going to be thrilled with uh, because it was uh, the old west. Um, but uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, 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 I, I, I shouldn't. I don't want to leave a chart on you know which which film had more blood, which film had more quote unquote curse words and and that sort of thing. You just, you should know going in when uh, when Emma and I uh, watched the film this week. Uh, there was she said there was one person that left halfway through the film. I don't remember seeing that, but somebody left right near the second to the last scene of the film, which I, which I found interesting. Um, you, you, you struggled through it that long. And then anyway, um, but I, I really enjoy Quentin's films and I really enjoyed watching this. Um, 
as I said, there's also you know I was talking earlier about the people who don't like each other but they have to work together. Uh, you know that's John Wayne with uh, any other big name co-star in the 60s and 70s, whether it's the War Wagon with Kurt. Uh, Kirk Douglas or the undefeated with Rock Hudson or El Dorado with Robert Mitchum, you know, those type of pictures. Um, it's a genre film. It's it, it, this is like I said, this is not his uh, revenge fantasy that Django Unchained and uh, Inglorious Bastards were. Uh, this is just a straight up bloody Western and and it gets really bloody in the second half. There's a lot of build. And that's the other thing is it, it's it's a long film. Even if you're seeing the regular version, um, I think we're looking at I'm trying to remember exactly how. It, yeah, you're a hair under three hours, 167 minutes, uh, while the uh, 70 the Roadshow version is uh, a little over three. So you got to get into this world, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, probably it would make my honorable mention. And by the way, I'll give my best and worst of the year on next week's show. I just be, and I'll explain why on next week's program. But I I enjoyed it. Again, you know, Quentin is is not everybody's cup of tea, but I enjoy the tea. So I I say go go check it out. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. Uh, something I I forgot to mention before you heard uh, Sir Ben Kingsley screaming and my daughter laughing. Um, the the quibble about uh, the the big name star who I won't mention. Um, the plot changes obviously halfway through the film because of the inter- with the intermission. And uh, at the beginning of the film, they do the credits as as normally they would do is you know who the, the actors. And who, you know who's involved, and, and some of the crew. I think if they had eliminated the credits at the beginning, that would add a little more element of surprise. That's just me. So anyway, that 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 was the the major quibble I have with with uh, the hateful eight. And again, that's a that's a minor quibble nonetheless. Um, and also, really, really excited to hear Ennio Morricone do a western sound a score again. I believe this was his first Western score since A Fistful of Dynamite, a.k.a. Duck, You Sucker. I hope I'm correct on that. But I know he and Quentin had worked together in the past, and there was a a rift between uh, the two of them while working on... Oh, man. I I believe, yeah, it was on Inglorious Bastards. So nice to see them reconcile. And uh, besides the score for Mad Max, which I really enjoyed, but I, I really hope Morricone, I'm pushing for him to get a nomination for this. I, I just love that guy and his music, all 900 scores that he's conducted and written in his lifetime. So, um, yeah, that was fun. Fun daddy-daughter day. Um, speaking of which, the Sosies went and saw Joy, which I, this was my second time seeing the David O. Russell film with uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Robert De Niro, Bradley Cooper. Diane Ladd, Virginia Madsen, and uh, watching it a second time was fun to watch it with my wife and my daughter because obviously it's a it's a girl power story, it just happens to be done by David O. Russell, and uh, they got a lot more out of it than I did, and that's not I'm not dismissing the film, I'm not dis- diminishing the film, but um, I think the fact that a young woman trying to make it in the business world and learning the hard way of what it takes to be successful. Um, inspiring and encouraging. So that was that was that was fun to watch. Um, okay, I want to move into the video store um, 
in a moment, but we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I've just double double talked. Uh, We'll go into the video store, talk about a couple of titles of note, and then uh, we'll dip into the interview archives. So stick around. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point and WFYI.org. on WFYI Indianapolis. Hi, I'm Ingrid Hoffman from Latin Delight and Simply Delicioso. You are listening to Film Sociology, WFYI in Indianapolis. Hi, this is Padma Lakshmi, and you're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI FM Radio. Hi, I'm Robert Irvine, and you're listening to Film Sociology, WFI in Indianapolis. Hey there, it's Ted Allen from Chopped on the Food Network, and you are listening to Film Sociology with Matthew Sosi on WFYI Indianapolis. Yo, this is Fred the Hammer, and you're listening to Film Sociology on WFYI in Naptown. You know what I'm saying? On WFYI Naptown. Keep tuned. You might learn something. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, a buffet of TV cooking personalities and Fred the Hammer Williamson in one medley, because I can. Uh, welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Sosey. Uh, before we... Uh, during the medley, of course, I ended with uh, Fred the Hammer Williamson. A, a couple of days ago, I finally caught up with the uh, screeners that were sent to me for the end of the year award considerations, and it didn't really change my list. And you'll hear the list uh, of what the IFJA uh, awarded on next week's show. Um, I want to have a full a full house, hopefully, uh, to talk about that. But uh, but a couple of days ago, I had come across a Fred Williamson film I had not viewed before and so i was happy to check that one off the list the 1974 italian drama crazy joe uh directed by carlo uh carlo lizani and it starred and it was one of those italian finance dino de laurentis was the producer on it italian directed italian crew but with an american cast including the in the title role peter boyle who uh it's it's a film that's supposed to be based on new york gangster crazy joey gallo 
Um, Fred Williamson plays a guy that he meets in prison, and their two armies team up together when they get out of jail. Uh, also in the cast, Paula Prentice, Rip Torn, and uh, a, a small role by a young Henry Winkler. This is before Happy Days, uh, so of note. And uh, Michael Gatso, for you fans of The Godfather, also in this. Anyway, it was a, a decent... Uh, as as Kobe would roll his eyes when I say it's a decent pot boiler of a of a crime crime drama from uh, Fred Williamson, and this was one of the I think believe it was one of the first films that Williamson worked on with an Italian crew, and then uh, he wound up making more films in Italy, uh, not only as an actor but as a writer and a director. So anyway, that's stuff you come across on TV from time to time. All right, uh, let's go into the video store. A couple films of note that came out this week on uh, DVD and Blu-ray. Interesting that it's the the uh, big title for me is the other Kurt Russell Western, where he's got that uh, humongous facial hair. It wasn't just for The Hateful Eight, but it's also in a film called Bone Tomahawk, uh, which got a limited release, and hopefully will get a bigger life on uh, on DVD and Blu-ray. Kurt Russell plays the sheriff, and it's, again, another Western, uh, where he is teamed up with Richard Jenkins and Patrick Wilson, and they uh, and Matthew Fox, almost unrecognizable, as they uh, they go out and, and try to retrieve the kidnapped town doctor, a female, and she happens to be married to Wilson's character. Uh, Wilson's got a banged up foot, and if you if you like the fifties and sixties westerns where there's a lot of riding, there's it's a it's a slow paced western. I, I'm not going to say it's slow because uh, watching these four perform the four male performers work together is is pretty interesting. Um, it could probably, that being said, it could probably use some trimming uh, because the last half hour, there's such a shift in tone and uh, a lot more action. So I, it's just something, it's still shorter than Hateful Eight. Uh, but I think if it were tighter, I would probably like it a lot more. But it was it was kind of a, an old school, like Tarantino, an old school feel uh, to stories we've seen before, whether it's The Searchers or a number of Westerns from the 50s and 60s, where there was a lot of riding footage and then a lot of them uh, by the campfire talking and dealing with certain obstacles. Um, you know, a good one, not a great one. Um but again, I, I even though I still even though I say it should be probably snipped uh, a bit time wise, uh, I'm not. It's not a. It's a not a slow film. I think it's a slow paced film. There's a difference. Uh, the other title of note this week, A Walk in the Woods. This is the film with Robert Redford and Nick Nolte and Emma Thompson, as my wife always points out. Uh, I know at, at certain times in a, in a well near the the second half of an actor's career, especially if you are an, an acclaimed actor, that you like to work with a lot of your peers whenever possible. De Niro's done this, and and, and many other people, and uh, and this was I guess a chance. Redford, who was I believe what producer on this, gets to team up with Nick Nolte. Now, according to to reports, this this is a script that's been lying around for a long time, and I think it was originally intended for Redford and Paul Newman to work once again. And, and you know, how much validity there is to that, check the Internet. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. But uh, but they play old friends. Redford is at a time in his life, he's a, he's a, an acclaimed writer and kind of a crabby old man. Uh, yes, the film is Grumpy Old Men Meets Wild, and you'll get why in a minute. And uh, frustrated with uh, going to too many funerals of friends and colleagues, he decides to do one final pilgrimage of of, uh, athleticism, and that's to go and hike the Appalachian Trail, not a politician euphemism. 
Um, much to the chagrin of his wife, played by Thompson, uh, who doesn't get to do a whole heck of a lot. She's at the very beginning of the film and at the very end of the film. And uh, Redford can't get anybody to go with him on this journey from uh, Georgia to Maine. And he winds up, a, a friend he has not seen in a long time, the, the oddball recluse played by Nick Nolte, insert punchline here. And uh, he decides since uh, and the last time they spoke, they weren't really crazy about each other. And no, these characters still owes him six hundred dollars. But since he's desperate for a comp for a partner on this journey, they go along. It's a nice looking film, obviously, because you're you're going through uh, parts of Georgia and the Carolina. I believe the Carolinas. Sorry, geography majors. Um, Redford and Nolte, pretty good together. There's some nice moments when it's just the two of them. I, I say it's grumpy old men meets wild because there is a lot of talk about them getting older and they're they're more tired and they're more haggard than they once were. And, uh, and of course, wild because it's about uh, hiking. No Reese Witherspoon in this. But there is Kristen Schaal who adds a distraction as a, as a fellow hiker who walks with these guys for a while and never, never puts a period on a sentence. Um, when the film goes away from the two characters and they have to get into these kind of hackneyed, almost sitcom-esque adventures, um, whether it's dealing with, uh, the Kristen Shaw character, dealing with a bear, or actually a couple of bears, uh, going to a hotel, a motel, I should say, that's run by Mary Steenburgen and Nolte winds up going on the prowl with a woman he meets at a laundromat. Not really needed. I, I guess I wanted more of a guest van Sant's Jerry than I did uh, a wacky old guys falling down and running comedy. Um, it's it, Overall, it's okay. I think it could have been a lot better. Um, a couple other films of note, courtesy of Film Movement, uh, everyone's favorite movie of the month club, and I actually got four, uh, four films in the mail and watched two of them, both French, um, hopefully both be, will be checked out by more people. So check out the film movement's website for the information. Coughed, excuse me. Uh, the first film is called cruel and it's for those who are not fans of horror films. It's, it's slightly above this. It is a film about a, uh, a homicidal killer who, uh, who stalks and can, and abducts and then kills his victims at random. Uh, but part of it is he t- trying to follow his own rules as far as never getting caught. Uh, part of it is being isolated out in the middle of nowhere with his bedridden or say wheelchair ridden father um, and the solitude that he lives by himself out in the middle of nowhere with his father and the occasional nurse that comes and takes care of dad. Uh, but also what happens when he winds up having a budding romance with a young lady and when and if his homicidal urges will start to come into play. Um, it's a restrained performance by an actor, of, pardon my French, literally, Jean-Jacques Lelt, who uh, who plays the killer in question and who's torn and has really strong feelings for uh, for this young lady played by uh, Laure Ori. And uh, there's a there's a nice twist near the end, which I of course I don't want to give away, um, but it does. It, and it's a twist that you don't really expect. And uh, it, it's it like I said, it's a step above your your kind of serial killer movie. It's it's trying to get deeper into the psyche of what happens when you have these urges, but you're also stuck in a rut when it comes to life and uh, and what happens when something good comes your way. So anyway, the film is called Cruel. The other French film that at first looked like a, uh, a horror film, um, 
and it turns out to be a little bit more than that. It's called The Man-Eater, and it stars Mylene Japoni, uh, Japonois. Uh, she plays a bisexual temptress, an artist whose name is Jezebel. Stick with me. And uh, she decides, this is the type of woman, and you see it in the open, uh, one of the opening scenes where her father dies, and she attends her father's funeral in a bright red dress. Bright red tight dress. And uh, anyway, Jezebel has set her sights on a young, handsome priest who is new to the area, one of those that rides a motorcycle, and uh, and uh, kind of in a dangerous liaisons-type move, just wants to break him spiritually and have him turn his back on God and uh, administer lust onto her. So, and that's that's the gist of it. Uh, it's, it's the film is under ninety minutes, thank goodness, um, and it's it is kind of a cat and mouse game between this manipulative bisexual temptress and a man of God. Um, Mark Rookman plays the priest, and there's some nice nice scenes together between uh, he and Mylene, the actress. Um, and uh, this is a film that couldn't be made in the states. I'll say that. I, I I hope there is not an American remake of this film because I think it'll be softened. Um, lust and priests. I mean, that's that's a topic that you can't cover every day. And as a kid, I, of course, remembered the Thornbirds and Monsignor and even to a lesser degree, Tom Barron, the Tom Berenger film Last Rites. Hello, Daphne Zanuga. Um, but uh, but there is a nice give and take between uh, scenes where he's taking her on his motorcycle to help uh to bring food and medicine and clothes uh, to the poor side of, of Paris. And uh, she claims to be a soul to be saved, even though she wants a soul to be taken. At first, I thought she was going to be a, 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 de- a demon that has come from hell to take the priest. But no, she's just she was she's not bad. She's just drawn that way. Uh, anyway, good performances from the two of them. And like I said, under 90 minutes. If you're into something that's a little racier and uh, does talk a little bit about the battle for one's soul, whether you are a priest or a bisexual artist, um, those are both worth checking out if that's your cup of tea. And, and hopefully it is. All right, we're going to take one more short break, and then we will go into the interview archives. So stick around. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org.
Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msosi at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Sosi. Of course, a Tommy Wiseau ID is always good. And, of course, music you heard before that was from For a Few Dollars More by Ennio Morricone. And the music for the first break, which I forgot to mention, is from A Fistful of Dynamite or Duck You Sucker, also done by Ennio Morricone in celebrating celebration of his uh, his score to the Quentin Tarantino film, The Hateful Eight. All right, it's time to go into the archives for a couple of interviews because I can and it's the end of the year and Kobe's not here. Uh, but we're going to go back to my chat with uh, Mary Jo Peel, best known as uh, Mrs. Forrester on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And uh, she had recorded uh, an EP of fictional theme songs to some of the movies that she has riffed in the past. So here's my chat with Mary Jo Peel. So, Mary Jo, tell us about Song in the Key of B-Movies. Well, I was looking for some sort of project to do after uh, Cinematic Titanic stopped touring. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard or read the book um, The Artist's Way. Yes. And uh, when you do it, it, it sort of walks you through the steps of the things you'd like to do in your life. And one thing that came up for me when I did The Artist's Way several years ago was wanting to sing or be in a band or make an album. So I kind of thought, you know, maybe this is what I do. And I just didn't have a framework for it. So I approached a friend of mine who I have worked with for years in the Twin Cities doing a lot of theater. And he had all these great ideas about how to approach it, and that's how it came to be. Am I answering your question? Oh, oh yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm, well, that's part of it, because I was going to ask how, how this started, which you, you just did. Um, when I first heard that you that this album was happening, I first I thought it was that you were singing songs that were already on the film. So my first concern was, why are you doing Arch Hall Jr. tunes? <laughs> Right, right. Well, no, and I really didn't want to do that. I sort of wanted to, you know, use MST3K as uh, informing it, but I also wanted it to be original, too. And so when I was talking to Mike about producing it and writing the songs, we were kind of bouncing it around, and then it, it, it kind of took shape, like, this should be the imagined theme songs. And he, he wrote these amazing, funny songs. I mean, he totally got it. So that, and we couldn't do, we really couldn't do a lot with any of the movies and the songs that already exist because of licensing. So we did sort of an imagined theme song take on it. Well, I'm sure Hoyt Axton is relieved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you better watch his back. Uh huh. <laughs> what films inspired the songs for the album? Mike Mike Warren did looked at a lot of revisited all the movies. I feel like I didn't do too much of that because they're already in my bones. Um, <laughs> I wanted to do some of my favorites, which would have been um, uh, Time Chasers and Space Mutiny is one of my favorites. We also felt like we had to do Manos because it's <laughs> a huge fan favorite, as is Mitchell. So we kind of, and then after looking at the, the movies, 
we realized that they were really rich for providing some sort of material for an imagined theme song. And then I got this wild hair that we should also cover the song that the guy does in, um, oh, I can't even remember now, Matt. It's a California lady, and I forget what movie it's from. It's not a theme song. It's when the characters go to a bar, and it's a really perfect California laid-back, lame sort of folk song, and it kind of took on a life of its own within the history of Mystery Science Theater, and I thought, I want to do that. So I spent months trying to track down Frank Larrabee, who's the singer, and the writer of the song in the movie, and he finally agreed to let us cover it. So I'm doing a cover of it. Oh, my gosh. I'm assuming, are there different genres of music in this collection? Yeah, one is um, one is very much sort of a Shirley Bassey uh, homage. <laughs> um, one is a real, a Space Mutiny has a real synth 80s vibe to it. Of course. Um Manos, uh, I I guess I'm at a loss to describe that one. Well, it's hard so, yeah, to it's hard to describe because, Manos. Period. I'm sorry. It's hard to describe Manos. Period. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> so yeah, they're all inspired by sort of the uh, theme song genres. Getting back to Manos, because by the way, my daughter's 13, and she thinks that that and the room are the two worst cinematic experiences she's ever had. I can't believe you let her watch Manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way: what when I parent, are you? <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get oh, her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. <laughs> <laughs> she knows that. Have you always wanted to uh, to sing or and play an instrument? Well, yes, I have always wanted to sing. I've always fancied myself uh, being in a rock band. I almost always fancied fancied myself, um, you know, Stevie Nicks or some such. Uh, but I had very little musical training. I'm like a in the car singer, <laughs> so. Uh, and I I was pursuing other things at the at the time. I never imagined myself actually doing it and like I say when I read the artist's way and you start um, you know writing things that you sort of lost track of like what were my dreams at one point it came up again and I really have no delusions that this is going to be my big Grammy winning you know album of the year I really did it for fun I'm I'm at an age and a point in my life where uh, I I want to pursue things with people who are talented and funny and make me laugh and totally get it. And it was working with Mike, it was Mike Warren, and it was um, doing something I'd never done before. And even if you do win awards, you still have to give them to Beyonce. Yeah, I know. I know. If, if I won something, who knows if Kanye would darken my doorstep. Yeah, you have to respect her, you know. <laughs> So with she, with the rec- owns all yeah with the re- with the recording of these songs did you did you go back and watch any of the movies afterwards or pre- or to prepare for it? No, I didn't because I've seen them all <laughs> uh, a couple of times. I think over in the past couple of years I've revisited all of those movies, so I didn't necessarily prepare for the songs. 
Mystery Science Theater is going to be featured on PBS starting in March. Did you ever think uh, your work would be seen on public television? I know you've done NPR uh, essays in the past. Yes. No. Never imagined. I never imagined 90% of the permutations that Mystery Science Theater has taken. Uh, my daughter, is, when she was younger, referred to them as uh, daddy movies with the funny robots. So <laughs> she... That's the new title. That's the new PBS title. Gee, I wish. But, uh, I mean, she's literally grown up watching your work. And so, wow. so help So despite my Manos thing, thank you for helping raise my child. You're welcome. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> it's, it's cheaper that way. Um, uh, I guess, going back, how did you first become involved with Mr. Science Theater? I knew those guys um, from doing stand-up. I knew Mike Nelson. I knew Bridget. I knew Joel from doing stand-up in the Twin Cities in the mid-late 80s. And they started the show, and at the time, I didn't have a, a television, so I didn't, I never saw it. I didn't really get what it was about, but I knew it was, it was kind of a deal because, um, you know, it's a television show produced in our hometown. So after they were going for a couple of years, they were, they got picked up by Comedy Central. It might have been Ha at the time, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard that they were expanding the staff. And Bridget called me and she said, you didn't hear it from me, but we're looking to add someone to the staff. So you might want to give Mike a call, Mike Nelson. So now I've completely outed Bridget 25 years later. And so I called Mike and I was, I was incredibly nervous. And mind you, I hadn't even seen the show. I didn't even know what I was asking for. I was doing a lot of stand-up comedy and I just knew I wanted to get off the road like a daily writing gig would be great. So I called him up and I said, you know, if you're ever, I played it cool. And I said, if you're ever happening to be looking for new writers, I'd be interested. And he started to talk. And at that moment, my um, dot matrix printer started printing something. So I couldn't, and I had a very tiny apartment, so I couldn't hear what he was saying. But the upshot of it was, he said, um, well, we are looking for a couple new writers, so um, I'll give you a call about coming in for an audition. And so I did, and then they forgot I was there, and I stayed for seven years. So besides uh, being a voice and besides playing Pearl, how many how many characters do you think, have you ever jotted down how many characters you have played over the years? Wow, that's a really good question. I've never counted. Uh, it could be six or eight. How did you approach writing for the show? I wondered if if you guys broke in the teams. I know you watched the films together, but I wondered if there were groups that were broken into as far as working on this segment or you know this this non film part of the show. No, we all took a, a whole segment. We would brainstorm during the writing of the movie. We were all in a writing room for the writing of the movie, and then for those interstitials, those host segments, we would brainstorm have a brainstorming session. We'd come up with ideas during the movie, and then we would winnow them down, and we would go individually. We we would each be assigned one and work individually on those. Sometimes if we had more people in the writing staff, in the writing room at the time, a couple of people here and there would, might team up, but that wasn't the norm. 
And how much did you write of uh, of Pearl? Oh, you know, it really depended. If I if I got um, assigned a particular sketch that involved Pearl, but it was never intentional. It wasn't like I aimed to write all the Pearl sketches. So everybody had a shot at writing writing Pearl. So I, I, how was it to go with the evolution? Because, you know, watching it, obviously, to go from what was a supporting character to, well, and that's finger quotes, but but to becoming, you know, the, the head villainess over time, um, how was it evolving with that character, not only as a writer, but as, a, as an actor? Oh, I don't know, Matt, because I'm, I'm not that sophisticated of an actor, so it wasn't like there was any sort of arc or character development. I think we drew her in pretty broad strokes. I think the thing that was challenging for me was having more lines because I don't memorize very well. And um, at the get-go, I was really nervous about stepping into those shoes and, and seriously, having to walk and talk at the same time was a real challenge for me to hit your mark and be saying words and then have some intonation to the words. That was really a struggle. I think, I think the hardest part was the weird sort of backlash about the Pearl character. This was kind of pretty much at the ascendancy of um, the internet and chat rooms and people being able to voice their opinions in a public forum. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of hateful things said and that, that I wasn't prepared for. Sadly, I took it a little too much to heart. And then, you know, after a while I kind of moved on because, you know, you get a perspective on it. I'm just going to do the work. So that was a part that wasn't, I wasn't prepared for. I'll, I'll I'll call it for you. Basement dwellers is what you call them. Yes. yes. Still, you know, it's, it's so surprising because you think you're just going to work to do your job, and then people are talking about you and saying really uh, mean things, which I don't understand why you have that much time to labor over these imaginary characters on a silly show. Well, it's it's 2015, and there's still Joel Mike debates. So I know. The, don't get me started. <laughs> the basements are busy. Ugh. They're always busy. Um, do you have a particular episode or a film that uh, that comes to mind when people ask about uh, about Pearl? Um, God, no, because I can never. It's been so long, and there were so many. I can never connect particular host segments to uh, the movies they were specific to. One of my favorites or one that stands out is one where uh, Mike floats over to the floating van and we just have a nice chat. And I think there were a lot of funny lines in it. I think, um, you know, Mike is such a great actor and comedic actor. Uh, The Bobo and Brain Guy stuff, at that time we were writing, we were with comedy or I mean the sci-fi channel. So we had to have a different story arc for each movie. And so that was kind of a struggle. I'm not sure it always worked, but working with Bill and Kevin always made me 
wet my pants from laughter, not just randomly, but from well, laughter. That, thank you for Although clearing I, that. I can't remember what the specific storylines were, but just working with them was a blast. Well, it sounds like because there, because it, one it was I know it was a long time ago, but because you had so many episodes, this could be like your version of the musician who's getting on the tour bus and getting off. And which city were we in? So. Yeah. <laughs> If it's Tuesday, it must be Cincinnati. Right, exactly. So you 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 do have uh, you do have the touring lifestyle uh, back when you were working on that. Um, yeah. It, yes, I'm going back to Manos, but I, apparently that was one of the hardest ones to write for to to prepare. That was I'd only been with the show less than a year when that when we got Manos, and I just so I was still you know feeling my way through the the writing room dynamics and desperately wanting to not lose that job like I had so many other jobs in my life. And when that started, I remember the distinct energy in the room. Everyone was really just sort of this sort of silent, breathless WTF about that movie because it's so strange. Nothing happens in the first 20 minutes. We had no idea what we had gotten ourselves into. Well, the first 20 minutes apparently was a travelogue for the Fair City. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And the history of that movie is so bizarre and, and weird that it's, I think there's some, like the guy was a cement salesman or a fertilizer salesman or something and swore to a filmmaker, a Hollywood filmmaker was in town and that the Manos filmmaker swore to him that he could make a better movie than any Hollywood direct, and that's what he came up with. The problem was he picked Hollywood, Texas, I think. <laughs> Do you remember the first fun bad movie experience you had? I mean, not not, not as a member of Mr. Science Theater, but but as as a as a regular regular person. Yeah, I remember going to uh, the drive-in with a bunch of high school friends. We were all this group of nerds, and we went to see Piranha at the drive-in, <laughs> and uh, I loved it. It's it sort of the light bulb kind of went off. Like, wow, really? This today? Does anyone know how bad this is? So it sort of shifted my thinking in terms of, oh, not every movie that gets made is good because I think until that point I'd been kind of naive that since it has been made, it must be good. And then I saw Piranha and I thought, oh, no, that doesn't always work. And we, oh, man, we laughed. We loved it so bad. And and that was written by John Sayles, too. Is that right? Yeah, that was one of his early I had jobs. That. No way. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, you know, it's not often you get Piranha and Eight Men Out in your resume at the same time. Exactly. You got to start somewhere, I suppose. I say, how often did you go to the drive-in as a kid? Oh, I can't imagine very, very often. I mean, that's when they actually existed. That's when they were pretty routinely attended. Not like now, where you can't find them; they don't really exist. And that was my chat with Mary Jo Peel. Of course, uh, best known as Mrs. Forrester on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Always, uh, it was always fun to talk with her. And uh, because of time, I can play most of my chat with filmmaker Mike Malloy, who did the Italian crime documentary Eurocrime.
Joining me on Film Sociology right now, the writer, director, editor, and co-producer of the documentary Eurocrime. Who do you think you are, John Sayles? Mike Malloy is here. Hi, Mike. Hey there. What is the reference? Because I have an exclamation point? Is that it? <laughs> no, the writing, directing, editing, oh, co-producing. See, see. Or you're Robert Rodriguez. He's another one who edits his own work, I believe. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, the editing was a real hitch on this one. Uh, a year plus on the editing. Wow. I would say, um, so, of course, your documentary is about the Italian police and crime movies of the 70s. What was your, you personally, what was your first Euro crime movie experience? Well, that, a lot of people ask me, like, uh, what film, you know, pushed me over into Euro crime obsession. And it didn't happen that way at all for me. Uh, I got into these films before I knew they were a genre. I, you know, I would just see selected, isolated little Italian-made crime films, and it never occurred to me that this was a whole genre. This was something that came after the spaghetti westerns, because the Italians were very fat-oriented, and they would burn something out, and then they'd move on to something else. And after the Italians had ripped off the American western, put down their own spin, and came up with something entirely different, after they exhausted that, they turned to Dirty Harry, cop films, and the Godfather, gangster films, and they did that from like 1972 to 1980. So I was just seeing all these films, and like in college and stuff, people would say, what kind of movies do you like, Mike? And I would tell them why. You know, I like Italian films. I like French films. They thought I probably was watching highbrow stuff like, you know, The 400 Blows or something like that. And meanwhile, I was watching these, uh, you know, shoot ups with all these grisly murders in them. And they always had, a, you know, usually an American or English star and a director. And it's usually listed, directed by Nick Jones. And you're like, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, sometimes they would anglicize the uh, the director's names or something like that, but that that happened more with the spaghetti westerns. By the time the Euro crime films came around, uh, pretty people pretty much knew that they were getting uh, an Italian product out of Italy. But the Euro crime films didn't penetrate the U.S. like the spaghetti westerns did. So that's why now you know this this revival movement that kind of spurred me to do the documentary, uh, you know. 30 years belated, these films are finally, you know, resonating with American audiences. So I guess I'll, I'll try a different approach on what What were the films that did motivate you to start this documentary? Oh, there, there are a number of them. Uh, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, there's so many different cuts and there's so many different titles. Like there's one that I love called Rome Armed to the Teeth, but I only recommend it in its assault with a deadly weapon incarnation uh, because... Um, I don't know, they, they just lopped off the first 20 minutes and made it a much better film under the title Assault with a Deadly Weapon. Uh, but, you know, some of the ones that have been available for streaming on Netflix that people can easily see are things like Caliber 9 and Street Law. Street Law is a great vigilante film, uh, and there's some debate as to, you know, because everybody just assumes that the Italians are the ripoff artists. Um, but there's some debate as to whether Street Law came out before Death Wish. They both are 1974 films. Right, and uh, say as you point out in the in the documentary, one of the things that the Italians did to make it their own was the amount of violence and cruelty, I mean, misogynistic cruelty and sex scenes in it. Um, was that from the get go? Uh, yeah, the Italians did not have the same puritanical influences that American cinema did, or the American cinema was, you know, shedding by that time, but still had the last vestiges of uh, the Italian cinema, you know. The main thing that I see difference as far as their boundaries of violence is the Italians almost delighted in killing kids. And that's still in American cinema was a big taboo. But yeah, there would be like there's one movie where there's a, a bunch of kids kids getting out of school and they happen upon the scene of a bank robbery. So this whole 
schools worth of kids around this corner, right as some, you know, bank robber with an itchy trigger finger just, you know, is ready to down people. And he does exactly that. Uh, just, it's just unbelievable the carnage where kids are concerned. It's funny you mentioned that because last year, I don't know if you ever saw Hobo with a Shotgun, but they have a whole I, a whole school bus gets torched up, filled with kids. Yeah, as I say, America, uh, North American cinema, I know that was Canadian, but North American cinema has finally kind of uh, shed some of those boundaries, but the Italians were, you know, a good 30 years ahead of us. Uh. And one of the things that was brought up, and I know Fred Williamson brought this up, about how American uh, American audiences and some American actors were kind of, kind of pampered as far as getting the best and the biggest budgets and the fact that you know he he was shooting movies there where they didn't even stay quiet during shooting and you know, a lot of it was dubbing later but it was a completely different shooting environment yeah you kind of bring up two different things uh the one they did not shoot live sound so that was an adjustment for american actors to show up on set and as they're giving their line deliveries, yeah, the, the sets are being built next door and people are pounding with hammers and people are out uh, ordering their cappuccino and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that was a big adjustment. But then also uh, something that Fred Williamson, uh, the American star, alluded to is the fact that, you know, you show up and there's no star egos in an Italian crew. Uh, there was no barriers. There was no hierarchy on set. Everybody was just there to make a movie. And, uh yeah, uh, maybe the only ego or macho uh, thing was uh, the Italians. Uh, everybody wanted to perform their own stunts. The big leading stars, you know, it was just expected uh, that, you know, this was a manly, you know, tough guy movie. Of course I'm going to, you know, jump out of the car myself. Of course I'm going to jump out of the second-story building myself. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, the French actor Jean-Paul Belmondo. Big, big international star, you know, became a star with the French New Wave movies, uh, you know, these dramas. But by the, the time the Eurocrime movies rolled around in the 70s, uh, man, he, he went full bore into performing the stunts. I don't even know how they got insurance for those movies. Uh, did they have insurance, I guess is the question. Yeah, I don't know. These uh, I, I've never. That's one aspect that I've never really delved into. But these movies are so run and gun, you know. With the, you know, they not only did they get the leading men to perform their own stunts, but they would just go out in public and what are, what they called stealing shots. Uh, you know, they would just go and for, perform, you know, shootouts on the open public streets, and people just were assuming that uh, you know this was, you know, they were seeing some bank heist in progress and stuff. So it was very easy to get the the extras to act naturally. Well, and, and there, there was a little bit of that. I mean, there still is in, in the United States. I mean, we've, we've heard stories of Cassavetes and early Kubrick doing such things, but not to the degree of these guys. And, of course, it also helped that a lot of the Italian filmmakers also had to deal with a lot of the local quote-unquote characters. Yeah, yeah, especially down in southern Italy and areas like Naples. Um, the street people were a major influence, and, you know, uh, the, you know, there would be beggars on the corners and stuff, and if if you wanted to shoot on that corner, then you had to pay the beggar what he thought he was going to make for the day and, and stuff like that. So in some ways it was a minor hassle to shoot down in southern Italy, but uh, in another way it was just uh, they were just tremendous. The filmmakers were tremendously liberated to just go out and do whatever, and they, they didn't. They didn't feel beholden to scripts either. You know, they would they would pass a unique location. And they're like, ah, let's just change it from a, a, a scene at the beach to a scene 
church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's just they, they were very spontaneous. And that's what a, a lot of the uh, actors and directors looking back say, yeah, these films were extremely low budget, but they had, you know, just the, such a life to them because of the spontaneity and they're such unpredictable. And today's movies, you know, you, you see them and, you know, as one, as one interviewee said, you almost know when the car's going to explode before it explodes. Mm-hmm. And the Italian films, just things came at you crazy like and you just didn't know what to expect. Now, uh, yeah, a lot of the actors uh, did say if if there was still business, they would they would not only do business in Italy but also live there. What happened? Well, uh, the first decline in Italian cinema uh, happened at the end of the Eurocrime boom. Uh, coincidentally, it had nothing to do with Eurocrime, but that's when belatedly the Italians started getting uh, more television because up till that point they had only had about one and a half channels, and there was a very big restriction on how many movies could be shown on TV. So uh, the Italians went to the cinema maybe four or five times a week, uh, you know, kind of like we tune into stuff on TV four or five times a week. Um, and uh, by the mid-'70s, they finally started getting TV. They got satellites and, you know, antennas and stuff and started to bring in stuff from other countries. And so the uh, uh, film industry went into sharp decline then. They they kept on through the 80s. They turned to, to Mad Max ripoffs. They turned to Indiana Jones ripoffs. But um, you know, by the end of the '80s, it it had pretty it had wound down even more. Yeah, I remember Fred Williamson with a bow and arrow and shoulder pads and a headband, and that that equaled the future. Yeah, yeah, that's that was their version of Mad Max. Mad Max, and then throwing a little dash of Escape from New York, and that's that's what the Italians were obsessed with in the '80s. <laughs> now, you also one of the things that's most impressive about Eurocrime are the number of people you were able to uh, to get to sit down and talk. How many people did you talk to, and how long did it take to get everybody? Uh, I think we talked to 21 people that made the doc, and then uh, some came kind of afterwards that we hope to be including as DVD supplements or something like that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was. I, I've never, I had never during the production of this whole thing, I had never left the country. I've never been to Italy. I've never been to Rome. The interviews that we picked up in Rome uh, were we. Uh, a great guy named Federico Cadeo uh, happens to shoot DVD supplements for the the big cult. DVD labels over in Europe, and he would, you know, drop a line to me and say, hey, I'm shooting an interview and so-and-so, do you want me to piggyback some Euroclimb questions on? So that worked out beautifully. And how many uh, how many actors and filmmakers did you personally interview? Um, uh, seven to nine, I think. Uh, you know, this was a real no-budget affair, um, you know, with, you know, basically – uh, uh, fueled by fan support, so you know we got some money on Kickstarter by the fans and everything. So uh, when I could limit my travel, I did. I you know tried not to be egotistical and to think that I needed to be there. I wrote all the questions for all the interviews, but I didn't feel as if I needed to be there in person if I had someone trusted that could you know set up the camera in my place. Okay, big geeky question. What was it like to interview Franco Nero? Uh, Franco Nero was very, very cool, but we kind of surprised him. Uh, I drove down to Miami, and um, he was there for a film festival, and I made a deal with the guy who uh, put him up. And uh, Franco Nero, I come into the house with the camera crew and everything, and Franco Nero was actually coming out of a a hidden door in a false bookcase. How surreal is that? (laughs) (laughs) And he looks up, and there's a film crew uh, in in the living room where he's staying. So... uh, yeah, that was that was my first time laying eyes on Franco Nero. 
Well, and, and the fact that the man's still working today, uh, decades later, and, and of course, you know, started out in spaghetti westerns and moved on to Euro crime when he when he wasn't wooing Guinevere. Ah, uh, right, right. Uh, yeah, he's he's remained very relevant. Uh, all this Django Unchained stuff aside, yeah, he was uh, recently in an ep episode of Law and Order. He was, uh, you know, in that Letters to Julia thing. Yep. Uh, yeah, so he's he's staying very relevant, and I'm very pleased because you know he's a he's a tremendous movie star. Silent Green is people. Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. And Happy New Year, everybody. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good night, Fort Myers. Good night, California. Good night, Michigan. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off! No. That's not what I said. Nope. Nope.